We're in a series called The Recovery of Lost Joy. This is part six. Weary in well-doing. I love moments of fresh discovery in God's word. I find it absolutely uh, exhilarating when you see a, an old passage. I mean old in the sense that in your experience, you've read it over and over and over. You could probably quote most of it. And you see something that you didn't see before. And it's not something on the fringe of the text. Like some, There's always people that see some goofy explanation. I don't mean that. You see something embedded right in the words of the text that you hadn't noticed as fully. And that's what happened to me, and that's what I'm sharing tonight. I want to talk to you about being weary in well-doing. Not being weary in bad-doing. Weary in well-doing. And the text is Galatians 6, 7 to 9. And as always, I sure hope you have a Bible of some kind. Well, I guess it's in your notes. So I'm keeping you from bringing a Bible to church. Galatians 6, 7 to 9. Let me read the verses and then tell you what I noticed. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Nothing new there. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And I had always taken those first four words, don't be deceived. I think every time I've heard them preached, every time I've studied them for my own teaching, the words have always carried along that meaning of of warning. And there's no escaping that warning note. It just can't be dodged. There's, there's such a tendency to think we can, and it's getting worse, a tendency to think we can kind of splash around in our lives however we might like and still be able to scrape together some kind of what we want to call a Christian life or a walk with Jesus or whatever phrase you want to use. And the warning there, don't, don't be deceived, is don't kid yourself with that. Like, Like, it really matters whether you live for Jesus. You can't just say you're living for Jesus and sow your life any way you want. Because, you know, it's not not like you can fake God out like a magician can make a card disappear. Like, he knows what's going on in my heart and in my mind. And I'd always seen that, and I'd always seen the warning in it. But what about those words, do not be deceived, and how they relate to telephone? How they relate to the last half of verse 8. You see it? Look down at your text. The last half of verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then verse 9 Let's not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How do the words, don't be deceived, apply there? And I started to see more and more 
that the words do not be deceived apply to the promise side of the text as well as the warning side of the text. In fact, here's the connection. Here's why good Christian people start to sow their life to the flesh. They do so because for quite a while they've been sowing to the Spirit and they're not seeing fruit from it. I still have the same problems. I've been praying about this and it's not being answered. I've got this habit and I've tried and I, I'm not overcoming it. And when, they, and when they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel sowing to the Spirit, they decide, what, what difference will it make if I get careless in this area of my life? So there's that relationship between really understanding the promise. Don't be deceived. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap. There's a connection between really believing that and how successfully I can keep my life from sowing to the flesh. Do you, do you see the way I was trying to make that link? I think that's why you have those two halves of the text and why they're both headed up with those words, don't be deceived. What about the person who faithfully sows his whole life to the things of the Spirit? What about the one who doesn't cave into the fleeting, immediate rewards of gratifying the desires of the self? What about the one who refuses to uh, build his identity around whatever temptations he experiences sexually? What about the one who doesn't bend to the applause of the world? What about the one who is so faithful to the Lord He's starting to grow weary because try as he might to keep a stiff upper lip, he has so little in terms of a nice harvest that he's seeing. What about the many times when the moral standards of the church shift so much and you're mocked for not morphing along with them? Then this text comes. Don't be deceived. You keep sowing to the Spirit. There's a bigger harvest here than you think. And even if you're not feeling the fruit of it right now, don't be deceived. Yes, there is the warning side, but there's also, Paul has in mind, don't be fooled, don't lose heart. Don't let the enemy hollow out your dedication to Christ. You're, you're going to reap, Dawn. Just keep sowing. You're not in charge of the reaping. You're in charge of the sowing. Such an important study. I hope I can be just as simple and practical. The Bible is such a realistic book. I think we can be grateful that it deals with life the way it really is. It doesn't just gloss over the full gamut of situations that we face in this world. Never think of Paul. You can't think of Paul. Pictured sitting at a desk, you know, with a nice cappuccino and a nice pen and sheets of paper writing out these essays about spiritual life. That's not how his letters came into being. He traveled around a lot. He suffered a lot. And he saw all sorts of people. He saw the kinds of situations that 
would evolve in churches. He saw some of the mistakes people made. He wrote very practical letters, so many in your New Testament, to correct and instruct and help people face the future. So here Paul addresses people who were doing a good work. They were facing the right way. They were trying to move in the right direction. They were trying to honor Christ. This isn't a question of some sinful course of action or immoral activity or doctrinal heresy that he was trying to correct. Not here. Those moral warnings are included. But the more common problem that he's trying to shoot at here, a dear Christian brother or sister who's faithfully been working for the Lord, maybe for years, and still working hard, but doing the same work and feeling the joy of it less. There's no lightness in it, no thrill. The excitement's kind of wearing off. So in short, He's not doing anything differently. He just feels differently doing the same thing. It can happen. It can happen to a group of people. It can happen to a church. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones in his classic book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. I recommend it, by the way. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called, listen, the danger of the middle period of the Christian life. It's a great phrase. In physical terms, we know we call it a midlife crisis. There you see some old guy with white hair, and he's got the top down in his new Corvette, and you just think, okay, buddy, get whatever you can out of it. But it happens in the Christian life. It's, it's, it's the time along the road when you've, you've, you've sort of passed the initial surprise. But there's still a lot of work to be done for Jesus. Spiritual youth, I mean, it's certainly got its challenges, but it also has its own momentum that kind of carries you along. And spiritual old age it has a sort of wisdom and a mellowness that can rejoice in a race well run. It's that middle stretch. It's that middle period where there's the great danger of, of just becoming accustomed to the Christian life. None of us likes to admit it, but it can happen. We, we grow familiar with the things of God. We know the routines the really brand new discoveries maybe are fewer, farther between. Oh, you get that new worship song once in a while that moves you, but it doesn't hang around that long. And here's another factor. Unfortunately, while the thrill of excitement of the beginning of the race kind of wears off, the trials tend to pile up. the zip and the enthusiasm that used to carry you over all those hurdles. Suddenly the hills seem a little bit steeper. The valley's a little bit deeper. It's that middle stretch. Before we begin to look at some solutions to this, I think there are three things 
the Christian must not do. Let's start with the negatives, okay? Three things. I'll just mention them quickly. One, or one A now. The Christian must not quit or give up in the battle. There is no exception to this. In spite of how godly we like to think we are, there are very few Christians who at some point, even if they don't do it, inwardly wrestle with the inclination just to throw in the towel. It comes. The devil takes advantage of seasons. So don't quit every time the Bible tells, every time the devil, excuse me, every time the devil tells you to. Avoid rashness. I like that verse, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Notice the order. It's not that God gives strength so that you'll be quiet and confident. Rather, as you settle your spirit, as you wait on the Lord, then he will give you strength. You see it over and over in the Psalms. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. Resist the temptation to give up. B, three things you're not supposed to do. B, don't rely on artificial means to perk up your soul. By that, I mean the Christian faces in the spiritual realm what the world faces in the physical realm. The world goes to drugs and alcohol, all sorts of sexual experiments. It's not like that for the Christian as a rule. When you're trying to use artificial means. It's, it's new trends, new books, proclaiming, analyzing new things, new developments for the church. And every once in a while, I just begin to wonder how many new programs, new concepts for the church, new expenditures of energy, new trends in theology are just the last efforts of a group to find some excitement in their Christian walk. I was thinking about those words from Psalm 19, 7 to 10. Are those in your notes? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. What I want you to notice there, I'm not analyzing that whole text, but the emphasis on words like heart, soul, these are, these are inward words, not outward innovations and changes. This isn't a person who's merely taking up another project or discovering another subject of interest. This is, this is life-centered, transformed, nourished by abiding in Jesus like a branch in the vine. There's nothing rushed or sudden about this. A branch isn't noisy abiding in the vine. And this picture that Jesus paints is just, it's just one of abiding. 
remaining, constantly drawing quietly on the life of the vine. You just stay. You stay. Resist the scramble for something new. A new place. Go to this place. Go to that place. Get this book. Hear that podcast. There's nothing wrong with those things. I'm just saying you can make it like an Easter egg hunt. There's got to be something out there that's going to put some excitement into my walk with the Lord. Paul, he reminds the Christians in Ephesus that it's a mark of spiritual maturity, rather immaturity to be constantly tossed about after whatever is the next solution coming down the road. So that we may be, Ephesians 4.14, so that we may be no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's still something to be added. One more thing you mustn't do. Don't settle for doing anything for Jesus in just a programmed, formal fashion. True, you know, I don't feel close to the Lord anymore. Life seems to be going from bad to worse, but I don't want to quit. Pastor Don said it's one of the things you're not supposed to do. Don't quit. I'll just keep my nose to the grindstone. I'm just going to tough it out. That sounds like abiding, but it's not quite what abiding is. True, don't be scrambling after constantly new things. But you must get genuine spiritual nourishment from rooting your strength in Jesus Christ, not just your self-discipline. There are two things that'll go wrong if you just kind of gut it out with nothing but willpower. First, relying on your own self-discipline, you won't be able to keep that up indefinitely. You can do a lot of things just with the strength of willpower. But the Christian life takes grace, not just willpower. The will is involved, but it's a will that's being nourished and fed. The the, the power for Christian living can never just be pumped up from the flesh. You, You need to draw on the grace of Jesus So abiding in Jesus is not quite the same as toughing it out. Go back to basic things. Church, go to church regularly. Open your Bible, feed on it prayerfully, regularly. Spend time thinking about God's grace and goodness to your life in the past. Find things to rejoice in and be thankful for. But that's nourishment that's more than just gutting it out. Let me jump to point number two. Maybe most importantly, constantly preach to yourself about your own heart. Psalm 42, you see it in verse 5, you see it in verse 11. Why are you cast down? This isn't a godless person. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, 
my salvation. 11, why are you cast down? Same thing. Why are you in toil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. You see the future look? I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Why? Why, why am I so restless? Why am I so hesitant before the Lord? Why have I become weary? What is happening in my heart? Those aren't rhetorical questions. The psalmist is he's probing for some kind of an honest answer. Let me, let me suggest some common sources of trouble for people who are weary and well-doing. Sometimes it can just be drained physically. Not enough sleep, not enough exercise not eating properly, not taking time for rest and nourishment. I love the story of Elijah, the prophet of God. It's in 1 Kings 19, 2 to 8. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose, ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. He needs sleep. Slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel of the Lord said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Journey's too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, went in the strength of the Lord, strength of that food 40 days and nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So this account, believe it or not, Right before this, Elijah's on Mount Carmel with all the false prophets, remember? Let's see who's real. Whose God is real? We'll build the altar, and the God who answers by fire is the living God, and we will serve him. And all these prophets of Baal, they're dancing and shouting, and they're cutting themselves. Read it. Blood is flowing, screaming, praying, calling out to their God. Nothing happens. Elijah, he's all by himself. And he comes, you know the story. Pour water all over that thing, he says. Drench it. And they do. And he says, put more water on it. Soak it. And he says, that they may know that you are God in Israel. Boom, and the fire comes down, and it says it licked up the water in the trenches and consumed. And you think this, Elijah, wow. I wouldn't have had the guts to do that. And here he is. Oh, boy. The only, you know what? I'm the only one left serving you. Can't believe it. Oh, just kill me. God, just kill me now. What's wrong with him? Well, the angel knows. Eat this. Have some food. And he sleeps, and he does the same thing again. It's a very common situation. Behold the compassion of God, 
I love it. Before he speaks to Elijah, before he corrects Elijah, he feeds him. Chick-fil-A or whatever it is, he just brings it right to him. So it could be drained physically. Secondly, reevaluate the motives right at the bottom of everything you do for the Lord. I have to do this. You, you, you have no idea what it's like to do the same thing for 40 years until you learn how to do it. And that's death to a ministry. You reevaluate your motives. You go right to the bottom, the bottom of everything you do. Let me urge you to do it as well. Many Christians never look deeply at this, though they serve the Lord all their lives. I can serve the Lord because of the appreciation and recognition that comes from doing a job well. People tell you, it's heady stuff. How important it is to kneel before the Lord of the church, every one of us. And you say, Lord, it's your work. I'm your servant. I want to, I want to do what I do for you as though you were the only one who knew I was doing it. That's how you want to serve Jesus. I want to do what I do for you as though you were the only one who knew I was doing it. That is all the reward I want. Churches fight and argue and split, and people forget that. Evaluate the motives right at the bottom of everything you do for the Lord. Here's another danger. Another common danger is to get involved in the work of the Lord because of the excitement of the work itself. The challenge is big. The job can be exciting. There's this natural thrill of doing anything well. New undertakings have a particular excitement to them. That's why in churches all over Canada, more people start up ministries than stay with it for several years. Lasting excitement never comes from the work itself. It comes from abiding in the one for whom you work. I love uh, the books. He's dead now. I think he died in 1968. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Westminster Chapel, London. Donald Carson's great book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, and he writes of his very last meeting with Martin Lloyd-Jones as he was dying. Carson says, Lloyd-Jones was one of the most brilliant and influential preachers of this century. A few weeks before he died, I asked him how, after decades of fruitful ministry and extraordinary activity, he was coping now that he was suffering with such serious weakness that it took much of his energy to move from his bed to his armchair and back. And he replied as only he could in the words of Luke 10, 20, quoted them, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, Carson writes, do not tie your joy, your sense of well-being, even to power and ministry. Your ministry can be taken from you. Tie your joy to the fact that you are known and loved by God. Tie it to your great salvation. Tie it to the sublime truth that your name is written in heaven because that can never be taken from you. 
And the last thing Lloyd-Jones said before he died, I'd like to say this. The last thing he said before he died were these words. I am perfectly content. Isn't that a great way to leave this world? I am perfectly content. My last point follows naturally from that quote. Stay close to Jesus while you work for him. Weariness and well-doing frequently comes from seeing the work rather than the goal of the work. And I want to close with some scripture verses. Our text. Let no one deceive you. Do not be deceived. Then verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look at this. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. These are all, these are all what to do with that gloom in the middle of the race. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, so we do not lose heart. Why, Paul? You've had a rough go. Why don't you lose heart? Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That's a great trick. How do you do that, Paul? Well, hey, look. 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, keep looking to that reward. Now, let me read the opening text with all of what we just said under our belts. Do not be deceived. Jumping to the middle of verse. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. Do not give up. 